0: Such a blessing to see these kids go and learn about the Lord being here and go back there. Just uh, what mercy God has shown each of them to expose them to these glorious truths from God's Word. I I assure you, in response to Ken, that I I practice (laughs) no discrimination when it comes to the length, the difficulty of those those parallel passages. Uh, But we do hope to line them up with the text that uh, is being preached. So uh, I pray that you all are having have had a good morning. You know, sometimes uh, good is is not always what we define it as, and God is working all things for our good. And so we recognize that many of the things we experience, even on a Sunday morning, perhaps with our kids uh, or on the way to church, uh, that God is using those things, and so. I pray that we will not just define good as cheery and comfortable. There are many ways to uh, understand how God works good in our lives. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 11, verses 25 to 32. Uh, today we come to the end of Paul's discussion on Israel, and almost to the end of chapter 11. So, Uh, kind of a conclusion and kind of not. Uh, Next week will be the ultimate conclusion, but this week really does conclude the question of Israel that Paul has been dealing with for some time, Romans 9 through 11. And although I know in talking with some of you that some of you would not mind staying in these chapters for a while longer— I recognize that many of you are ready to move on to the rest of Romans, Uh, to Romans 12 perhaps, or just to get out of this larger question of Israel, the Gentiles, and so forth. And we have been on this topic for a while. I think going back, I recall uh, the first sermon on Romans 9 was sometime in May, I think, end of May. So we, we have been walking through, this has taken our entire summer, going through This portion of Romans. But isn't it striking to us how much space Paul gives to this topic? I mean, especially in a letter like Romans, which is filled with the kind of thing that we read in like Romans 3. Well, what we have on our posters here, Romans 3, 21 to 26, and uh, the last portion of chapter 8. I mean, isn't it striking to us that in a letter like that, that is so focused on the contours of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God does to those who've embraced the gospel, what he does in us by his Spirit, as we saw so much in, in chapter 6 and chapter 8, isn't it striking how much space he gives to this topic? And it is a sustained argument. Romans 9-11 through 11 is a sustained focus On this one topic, Israel's rejection of Christ, God's saving purposes for Israel and the Gentiles. Now, we've covered a lot of little topics. We've talked about election as a thing, as a phenomenon. We've talked about evangelism and and the going forth of the gospel. Uh, We've talked about a number of little topics along the way. But the big topic has been, since the beginning of chapter 9, what I just said. Israel's rejection of Christ and God's saving purposes for Israel and the Gentiles. And the amount of space that Paul gives to it tells us how important it is to him as the author. But even more fundamental, even more important, how significant this topic is to the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. Every word... Of the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. Men were carried along as the Holy Spirit inspired them to write the words in their very own style, with their very own personality. To write these words to us. To us, I say, because they were, they've been written to all Christians for the last 2,000 years. The Christians for 2,000 years have had to contend with these three chapters as they have gone through Paul's letter to the Romans. So these chapters are certainly important to our God. And that tells us that they are important for us. And as I was thinking about the impact of these chapters, or the impact that they should have on us as a church, I thought about a talk that I heard uh, several years ago from Paul Tripp. Now, this is something I've mentioned before, but it has really stuck with me. Uh, We were living in Scotland at the time, and he came over in 2013 uh, the church that we were a part of while we were there in Scotland hosted a marriage conference that he came. Uh, to, I believe, his book, uh, What Did You Expect? I think is what it was called. Uh, he was doing a conference on that book. And he was working on or, or about to publish a book called Dangerous Calling. And so that's a book on uh, for pastors and those who are interested in pastoral ministry. And so in addition to this day conference he did, he had this, this evening talk where he invited pastors and those who were considering pastoral ministry to come and hear. And it was focused on this Book dangerous calling and as his big idea kind of surfaced in that talk it became clear that there was really one word that he was focusing on and it is this word all all christian living and christian ministry must be rooted in a deep awe of god And that all of our Christian experience, and particularly as he was talking about it, for those involved in ministry, what we are doing in our lives and what we do in ministry has to be an overflow of standing in awe of our God. That was the big idea, and it has just stuck with me ever since. And I think that that is exactly what Romans 9 through 11 does for us. As we talk about the practical effect of these three chapters, I think it accomplishes that in us, or it should. Yes, it seems tedious, distant, and even a bit academic. The biblical theological questions, they're, they're kind of heady. They're the sort of thing that you would expect to get in a kind of academic setting or academic lecture or a book on biblical theology. Tedious, distant, and even academic, but it is meant to leave us in a state of awe at God's saving purposes. That's what we are reading about in Romans 9 through 11. And and nowhere else do we really get the kind of sustained explanation of God's saving purposes more, more comprehensively than we find in Romans 9 through 11. 11. So if you've been checking out for a few months now, I hope that that at least causes you to go back and say, well, hold on a second. I, I, what did I miss? I got to get back into these chapters. And we know that this effect of bringing an awe of God, we know that this effect uh, is what these chapters should have on us because that's exactly what it did to the apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we're reading through Romans 9 through 11, but Paul is writing Romans 9 through 11. And so what does Paul do when he gets to the end of this discourse, this extended discussion of God's saving purposes? He erupts in a big wow. That's what he does. And we'll look at that next week. He erupts in a, into a doxology praising God for his glorious nature and character. It begins in verse 33 with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and on and on until we get to verse 36. That's where it leaves the apostle, and that's where it ought to leave us. So I pray that as we've gone through this, if if we've kind of been a little sleepy during this, this summer period in these chapters, I pray that we'll revisit these, that you'll take these chapters seriously, you'll go back over them, and you'll ask the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to raise up your heart to the same place where Paul's heart was when he came to chapter 11, verse 33. Of course, he wasn't writing in chapters. But in addition to giving us an awe of God, we know from chapter 11 that this section of Romans is also meant to combat pride. So awe and humility. That's where we come to as we come to the end of this section in Romans. Awe and humility. And let me just say this to you. If you're wondering how relevant or how practical or how applicable Romans 9 through 11 are, let me just challenge you with this idea. What is more fundamental in the Christian life than awe and humility? And that is the twofold effect that we are meant to have in our own hearts as we come to the end of this discussion. The sermon title for last week was Gentiles Not Boasting. Paul wants to shut down any pride among the Gentiles. That's what his agenda is during this portion, this final portion. His agenda is to shut down the pride of the Gentiles over their inclusion in the people of God. Gentiles are streaming in, they're being included in the people of God. Meanwhile, Israel has largely rejected Christ. Gentiles coming in, Israel set aside the temptation, the danger is pride. And so that's what Paul is dealing with at the end of this chapter. And Paul continues this theme today as he concludes this entire section. So as we look at verses 25 to 32, we'll see that at the very beginning, he picks up again on this theme of pride. So if you want to go ahead and stand with me at this point. The title for the sermon this morning is God's Plan for Israel. And I thought about the word, putting the word concluded at the end of it. God's plan for Israel concluded. But I thought, well, that could be taken two ways. That could be taken as I intended it. Uh, This is the conclusion to the topic of God's plan for Israel. Or it could be taken in the way that this text uh, utterly defies. And that is that God has uh, finished. With Israel. So I figured that word concluded probably didn't fit very well. So I left it at God's plan for Israel. So let's go ahead and read God's word. We're going to pick up at the beginning of chapter 11, but our passage for today is verses 25 to 32. This is the holy inspired word of God. I ask then, as God rejected his people by no means, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Here's the conclusion. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. By the way, real quick. Paul is here conceiving of Israel as an entity that has these kind of two components within them. There is the elect and the rest. The elect obtained it. You could say the elect of Israel obtained it. But the rest of Israel were hardened. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, speaking of the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... Neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And now we come to our passage for today. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles... Has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The they here has to be the same as the Israel in the previous verse or verses. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me read that again. As regards the gospel, they, that has to be referring back to the Israel of verse 26, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. You can go ahead and be seated. There is just so much wondrous, so so much wondrous material here, in. Uh, in this passage. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for His help. Let's pray that He'll open up our minds, uh, help us to focus, and that He'll open up our hearts, that He will, uh, that we will behold Him in His glory, that we will be in awe, that we'll leave here this morning with mouth open, just in awe of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great plan. We praise You that You are the God who has a plan. Uh, There is no Uh, just uh, chance or fate, it is not, uh, we're not just at the mercy of uh, how things transpire, but we are in the hand of the sovereign, intentional, orderly God who has a plan. And God, in the midst of our lives, when we face chaos, as we remember the tragedy of 9-11 this weekend, uh, Lord, as we encounter uh, just things in our lives that are messy and painful. And uh, Lord, that just do not bring us happiness. Do not bring us joy. Do not bring us peace. Lord, help us to fall back on this great truth that you are a God who is sovereign and you are in control and you have a plan. Lord, we thank you that we get to read about your plan. We get to see what you've been doing since Abraham. We get to understand how we relate to those stories in Genesis and, and how uh, Israel as a people at the time of Christ factors into this, to this story of the past and, and, and of the present. And in the last 2,000 years, we get to understand something about the future. Oh Lord, we get to see how you are doing it all for your glory. God, give us minds to see what is here. And we pray that the sermon would be clear, that it would be received Uh, Lord, that your spirit would prick our hearts and use this time to sanctify us. As you promised, Jesus, that you will uh, sanctify us. Will you pray to your Father? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, please sanctify us this morning. Your people, your flock, your sheep, your bride. In your name we pray, amen. So as Paul concludes his topic of God's plan for Israel, he gives us three things to consider about Israel. And these are our points for this morning. Three things to consider about Israel. First, their salvation in the future. You'll see the verses up there where we'll get that. Secondly, their status in the present. And then thirdly, their sameness in The end. So let's go first to their salvation in the future. And for this, we need to look deep into verses 25 to 27. So their salvation in the future. Here's what those verses say Lest you be wise in your own sight. By the way, he's speaking to a largely Gentile church in Rome. Uh, The Roman Christians are mostly Gentile, with some Jews. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins here Paul reaches the climax of his discussion this is what he's been getting at throughout these chapters he's now reached the climax of all of uh, all the things that he said so far you'll remember that he began chapter 9 with his anguish over the unbelief of Israel when we first came to this section we saw that Paul was grieving in his heart so much so that he expresses this incomprehensible and impossible notion that he would be willing to give up his own soul eternally for the salvation of his people. And he's speaking the truth in Christ. He is not lying, he says there. And so Paul emphatically puts forth his grief His anguish over the unbelief of Israel. That's where he began this discussion. And since that point, he's led us by the hand to understand how Israel's rejection of Christ can be traced back to God's sovereign purposes and Israel's sin. And so we've seen this back and forth, a little bit of a seesaw effect as we've gone through Romans 9 through 11. We've, we've had moments where the focus is on God's electing purposes, that God sovereignly elected to harden Israel and to bring mercy to the Gentiles. We've, we've seen this emphasis on one side, but on the other side, we've seen the emphasis on Israel's sin. Their self-righteousness, their pride, their presumption on God's grace, their misunderstanding of the promises that God had given to Abraham. And their unbelief in God's Christ. So back and forth, the electing pur- What's happening? The electing purposes of God. The sin of Israel, back and forth, back and forth. We've seen that through chapters 9 through 11. And now, all the explanation comes to a head. And Paul wants to be as straightforward and clear as possible. By the way, what we read here today, we've seen already largely, not entirely, but we've seen it already. But now, Paul wants to drive home his point. He's been building a case He's been explaining the various dynamics that are going on. And now he wants to be as straightforward and clear as possible. Gentiles, he says, as Proverbs 3, 7 tells us, don't be wise in your own sight. Don't be wise in your own sight. And he's actually going to say that again in chapter 12 let me just pause for a second and say, you know, this is not the point uh, overall, but it's instructive for us. Anytime we are, as I said last week, anytime we are wise in our own sight, we're not in a good spot, right? So just think in those terms. You may be right in what you believe. You may be right in what you say, You may be standing up for the truth of God, but at any point, if you are camping out on your own wisdom, meditating on your own glory, if you are wise in your own sight, you're not in a good spot. Regardless of the rest, he tells them don't be wise in your own sight. And Paul then describes this thing he's going to say as a mystery. A mystery, a great end times reality that was formerly veiled but has now been made plain. And there's a lot packed into this idea of mystery. But if you want to understand basically what it means for something to be a mystery as Paul is describing it here. We need to go a little later in the book of Romans. We'll get there at some point, Romans 16 verses 25 to 26. And there he speaks of the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So there is a a prior hiddenness There's a prior behind the veilness to this notion of mystery, and there is a present tense disclosure of these prophetic end times related. And remember, the day of the Lord began when Christ came, so we've been in the end times now for 2,000 years. This is The notion of mystery. And so Paul wants to make this as plain and straightforward for his readers as he possibly can. So what is this conclusion? What is this mystery? And it has three parts to it. As Paul lays it out here. Three parts. And and as I said, most of this, though not all of it, has already been mentioned. So let's look at these three parts. First, a partial Hardening has come upon Israel. God has hardened Israel from receiving the truth. What? That's not very fair. That's not very... Hold on a second. Well, Paul's already dealt with that, so you'll have to go back to chapter 9 and you'll have to look at that. But God elects some. He hardens others... From the mass of fallen humanity in his eternal decrees, God sovereignly does this. He's God. He's God. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? That's what Paul said in Romans 9. So Paul's already dealt with so many of the objections that are leveled against God's sovereignty today. He dealt with those so clearly in Romans 9. But that's the first part of this mystery, is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. God has hardened them from receiving the truth. Not all of Israel has been hardened, but most. This partial hardening is most. It's the majority, It's not all, that's why he uses the word partial, but it is most. Most have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Christ, Christ was laid in Zion. A stone was laid in Zion, a stumbling stone, and guess what? Most of Israel just stumbled right over it. But some, as in the day of Elijah, have been preserved as a remnant some elect as a remnant, the rest were hardened. We've already seen that, but that's part of what Paul packs into this conclusion and this explanation of the mystery. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this is new. Paul hasn't dealt with this yet. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, this partial hardening, listen closely to this, this partial hardening has an expiration date. This hardening is not going to go on forever. This hardening is not permanent. It is until something else. It goes until something else happens and what is that something Else, Paul describes it here as the fullness or the full number of the Gentiles coming in. And this language of coming in is a picture of coming into the kingdom. You can trace this language throughout the New Testament, and it's associated with coming into the kingdom. So until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that is, comes in to obey Christ, comes in to have the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, as we read at the beginning of Romans, coming in, Obeying Christ, as Jesus says, come from east and west to recline with Abraham. That's future tense, but coming in to belong to this people. Just as God has opened the door to the Gentiles, one day he's going to close that door. Once again, this smacks in the face of pride. As though we're the end of the story as as the Gentiles, the nations. No, 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 no. God's going to shut this door at some point in the future. One day he will close that door. And this will result in a wide opening for Israel. Where the hardening will end. Remember, there is over Israel a partial hardening. It kind of, i think of it as a cloud. Oh, it's probably a bad way to think of it. But think of it as a cloud. It stands over Israel. And God is going to remove that cloud after, when this event takes place, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until then, the partial hardening remains. But at that point, it will be removed. And that leads us to the third part of this mystery. This end to the hardening is described more fully as all Israel will be saved. So uh, let me just say, those two ideas are, are, are functioning synonymously here. The partial hardening ending, that's the until part, is synonymous with all Israel will be saved. Now, this is not all Israelites throughout time. Let me just say that. It's not, that was what the Jews thought in Paul's day. That's why Paul wrote Romans 2. The Jews thought, as we talked about then, that there was this idea that Abraham sits at the gate of hell. And any Jew who comes headed down uh, the tube or whatever towards hell, Abraham is sitting there and he says, no, they they can't go here. And because on account of Abraham sitting there at the gate of hell, every Jew, no matter how wicked, is sent, turned around, and sent back to Abraham's bosom. This was a a, a kind of a popular idea at the time that Paul is writing But we know from Romans 2 that that's not the case because Paul says in verse 9 there, there will be tribulation and distress. He's talking about final judgment. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. There will be many Jews in hell just as there will be many Gentiles in hell. It is not a reference to all Israelites of all time. It is a reference to the Jewish people understood corporately as a people, they will be saved in the future. To use language from Previous verses. Let me just give you, Paul's already told us this, by the way. I mean, this right here is not actually the very earth shattering part because Paul's prepared us for this verse. It's not as though this just comes crashing into us. Paul has essentially said this in three places. Verse 12, they will be fully included, there will be a full inclusion of Israel. He's already told us. Verse 15, they were rejected, they will be accepted. By the way, the remnant wasn't rejected, so he can't be talking about the remnant there. They were rejected as a whole, and now they will be accepted. And then verse 24, they will be grafted back in to their own olive tree. So fully included, accepted, grafted back into their own olive tree. These are other ways of saying what Paul says here in verse 26, that they'll be saved. Here we need to notice something important. Paul's last reference to Israel. and This is very important for interpreting this word Israel. Paul's last reference to Israel was in the previous verse. So look down at it. The previous verse, verse 25. Now, what does Paul mean by Israel in verse 25? Well, there he clearly has ethnic Israel in view. The partially hardened mass of Israel. So, so it, it's indisputable that verse 25 is referring in its use, this is important, in its use of the word Israel. It's indisputable that in verse 25, Paul is referring to ethnic Israel, the, the partially hardened mass. So, how could he mean anything other than that when he comes to verse 26? Let me say that again. He's just used the word Israel in verse 25, and that's what he clearly means, indisputable. How could he mean anything other than that entity when he comes to verse 26? Some have tried to argue that by Israel here, Paul means the true offspring of Abraham across time. God's elect people, including both Jew and Gentile, that all Israel equals All the elect. This is one view that some have had, and others have argued that Paul means the remnant of Israel only. So here Paul is referring to the all Israel will be saved, all Israel, Jew and Gentile, like all the elect. That's the first alternative view. And then the second alternative view is that this Israel's only referring to the remnant, the true Israel. Not all Israel's Israel, Paul said back in Romans 9, right? So this is the true Israel, the remnant, as it's moving through time. It's the remnant throughout time that will be saved. Nothing more. No future hope. But here's the problem. Neither of these explanations work. This is, simple. by the way, there have been page after page written on this dispute. You can go and look at it, but I'm trying to simplify it for you. And neither of these explanations work in the context of verse 25. And that's not to mention the entire logic of Paul's argument. In verse 25, Paul clearly has the mass of Israel in view Israel as a people, a nation, a corporate entity that has been partially hardened. It is this entity that he says in verse 26, will be saved. So I hope that that makes sense to you why I went into all of those details. And if you spend some time studying this, you'll see why that is important as you read the different views on Israel being saved. So how is this going to play out? Well, Paul gives us some citations and allusions to Old Testament texts. There's Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, which we read earlier, Uh, Isaiah 27, 9, Psalm 14, 7. I'm listing these quickly, but all you have to do is look in your Bible. They're in the references. And the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Paul is alluding to or citing, and of course there's debate over which which ones he's alluding to and so forth. He's alluding to and citing these passages in this section. He writes, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, this salvation of Israel involves two major components. This future salvation of Israel involves two major components. First, the coming of the deliverer, which is a reference to Christ. And the removal of sins in accordance with God's covenant promises. These are the two components. So we could say it this way. This future salvation of Israel will occur in relation to the coming of Christ. This is the second coming of Christ. And it will involve an application of the new covenant to Israel as a whole. The application of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, it will involve an application of the new covenant to the hearts and minds of Israel as a whole. Unbelief will be turned to belief. They will be saved through faith in their Christ. They will no longer be hardened, but to use the language of Jeremiah 31, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. By the way, just a note. Jeremiah 31, which we appropriate, as we should, per Hebrews, is about Israel. The the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is explicitly about Israel. Israel. Now, we've been grafted in, and so we appropriate that gladly. And Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us we ought to appropriate that gladly. Those, that promise of new hearts, circumcised hearts that worship God, that is for Jews and Gentiles alike in Christ. But keep in mind that the promise there is addressed to the clans of Israel. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. more. There are various passages we can find in the Old Testament that speak of this, but that's what's going on. That's what Paul is describing: a future event in which Israel, as a mass as a people, turn to the coming Christ, well however that's going to play out in, in terms of time, it's associated with the coming of Christ, and it involves the removal of their sin. As they as Zechariah says, "Look on him whom they have pierced." And mourn. By the way, I, I'm spending more time on this first point, so don't get uh, don't get concerned. But before we move before we move to our next point, just pause and consider one thing before we move on. Consider that this very thing that we're reading about here, this is amazing. Think about this. This very thing, the hope of Israel, has already been done for us in this room. Guys, just think about that. What we just read, that's already been done for us. We sit here this morning. We speak to each other this morning. We sing praises this morning. We listen to preaching this morning. We read the Bible this morning. As people to whom, for whom this has already been done. Ungodliness banished. Sins taken away. Iniquities forgiven. Sins forgotten. Praise God for his grace. That's why we're here this morning. Not just hanging out. We are here just in awe of what God has done for us in Christ. And what he will do for Israel as a people through Christ. So now we come to our second point And uh, the second thing that Paul wants to say about God's plan for Israel. And that is their status in the present. So like I said, these two will be a little quicker. Look at verses 28 to 29. As regards the gospel, they, by the way, he still has to be speaking of Israel. So this also confirms that the Israel in the previous uh, verses was referring to ethnic Israel. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What a beautiful word when it comes to God and his goodness. Irrevocable. So what do we make of the Jewish people today? Collectively, they constitute Israel in the mind of God. God has preserved them as a distinct people for the last 2,000 years. Much suffering they have endured. We immediately think Holocaust, but uh, there are centuries of suffering for the Jewish people. Going all the way back to the Romans and... Throughout the Middle Ages, up to the Holocaust, and even today, a distinct people preserved for the last 2,000 years. Nothing makes this clearer than the modern state of Israel. Whatever you make of the modern state of Israel in relation to biblical prophecy, whatever you are to to make about how God is going to do these future things we're reading about in Romans 11 and how that's going to relate to the the modern state of Israel that we have here today in 2021, there are lots of questions there and lots of discussion to be had. But at the very least... The modern state of Israel makes clear that God has preserved this distinct people for 2,000 years and in the midst of much suffering. As I've heard John MacArthur say several times uh, on various videos and so forth and sermons, uh, he'll say something to the effect of there there is no modern state of the Hittites or the Amorites or the Hivites or any of those ites that you read at the end of um, Genesis 15 when God makes the covenant with Abraham and mentions the land uh, that will be given to Abraham. All those peoples When's the last time outside of that church that you talked about Edom or Moab or Ammon, or any of those. But we do talk about the Israelites, although we call them Israelis or Jews. They are preserved as a people to this very day though dispersed among the nations of the world for 2,000 years that's incredible any Christian I would venture to say reading his or her Bible has to conclude at the very least that there is some significance to the regathering Of Israelites into a modern nation. Hello! You may come to a different conclusion regarding what that specifically means. And if we were to sit around in a large circle this morning and talk about it, I'm sure we would hear lots of flavors. But at the very least, how do we read passages like this? How do we read? I could go on about passages in the prophets. How do we read these passages? and think that the regathering of Israelites in the modern age, in the last 50 plus years, 70 years, is irrelevant. Absolutely has no significance at all. But as we know, the modern state of Israel is very secular. It is a godless place, largely And it is still the case, as it was in Paul's day, that the great majority of Jews around the world reject our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Messiah. Their Christ. So what do we make of the Jewish people today? What is their status before God? Yes, in the future, he will save them as a people. They will somehow, at the, end of the, at the end of time, be converted as a whole. But what about right now? We're not there yet. What about right now, in the present? What is their status now? Well, interestingly, Paul uses two words. And these two words could not be more different. These two words could not be more opposite Radically, radically different. They are enemies and they are beloved. What? They are enemies and they are beloved. Any view of Israel has to hold both of these up, right? And there's all sorts of wrong views of Israel. Israel and the church, Israel and the Gentiles, what Israel is. The, the problem, the fundamental problem is that one errs either on, on one or the either of these. Either one neglects the fact that they are enemies or neglects the fact that they are beloved. They are enemies as regards the gospel, as Paul says here, and they have become this for the sake of Gentile salvation. And at the same time, while still being enemies, they are considered beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the sake of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this word beloved tells us that Paul is talking about God's perspective. God looks down on the Jewish people. And what does he see? Largely, enemies. And yet, God looks down on the Jewish people, largely, actually entirely, and he says, beloved. Both at the same time. In one sense, before the face of God, they're regarded as enemies. They hate and reject Christ like the parables that Jesus tells. They have killed the son as a people. They hate and reject Christ and his gospel. They are enemies of God. And any Jew who dies in this state of unbelief will experience God's wrath and fury. As it says in Romans chapter 2 verse 8. So call your Jewish friends to repentance and faith in Christ. Because apart from Christ, if they die, they will die in their sins. And experience God's wrath and fury. And yet, in another sense, God looks on them with great love. They are present tense and always present tense. Beloved. His beloved people. And in light of that, Paul says, don't think for a minute that God has thrown them away as a people. No, He says instead, in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Judgment cannot be the final chapter for the Jews because of God's nature and character. You cannot just simply take the Jews and say, well, all the curses have fallen on them. Have you not read the prophets? The prophets speak of curses. They always end in restoration. They, curses, read the curses at the end of Deuteronomy. They're horrific. They're horrific. People having to eat their own children. Read it. But then blessing. But then restoration. Then renewal. Then salvation. Judgment is not the final chapter. Once God promises, it is sealed. God's nature and character seal it. Once he calls, it cannot be undone. This is the same kind of language we find at the end of Romans 8. So let me say to you, if you believe Romans 8, you better believe Romans 11. If you, if you hold up the end of Romans 8 for yourself, you must also hold up the end of Romans 11 for Israel, for God's chosen people. What he says he does, he will fulfill his promises to the offspring of Abraham. He will not cast them aside forever forever. This is a God we can put our trust in. This is a God that we can bank everything on no matter what we're facing in this life. He is always faithful. He never lies. Finally, as we wrap up this morning, let's look at their sameness, their sameness in the end. Look at verses 30 to 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is a really incredible set of verses. Well, what is God's end game? What is his ultimate purpose? What's the target that God is shooting at? All these analogies fall short because God always hits it. But what is God's ultimate purpose in all that we've read about in Romans 9 through 11? Let me say it this way What's the whole purpose of human history? Well, we know the big answer to that question is his glory. And that's what Paul will say in the very last verses of the chapter, what we'll come to, Lord willing, next week. But how is God glorified in the end? What is the ultimate purpose of human beings? The answer comes so clearly in verse 32. God has consigned or imprisoned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That's just, that's why Paul the very next verse says, Oh, the riches, knowledge, the wisdom of God. First, the Gentiles, the nations were consigned to disobedience. God chose only one people. He didn't choose ten. He didn't choose the whole world. He chose one people. And he marched through history with that people. And he left the nations to themselves. He left them to themselves. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Asians, the Americans. He left all the nations, the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth to themselves. Apart from the descendants of Shem through This one line through Eber. The rest were left to themselves to fall into disobedience. Then he hardened Israel to extend salvation to the nations of the world. And now we, Gentile believers, must praise God for his mercy because we were not a people, we've become a people. Romans 9.25, we who had no hope and were without God in the world are now filled with hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5.5, 5. and now in the same way, listen to the wisdom of God, and now in the same way, Israel has been given over to disobedience. You see that? Do you see that? You see what God's doing? Now, in the same way that the nations were given over to disobedience, and then God showed them mercy, in the same way now Israel has been given over to disobedience, so that when God restores them as a people, he will be showing them great mercy. They will be left with nothing else but white-hot praise for God, of God, for his glorious mercy. Mercy Mercy, mercy. In the end, all are the same. That's why I've entitled this this, their sameness. In the end, all are the same. Both Jews and Greeks, both Israel and the Gentiles, all consigned or imprisoned to disobedience in order that God might show mercy to all. That's what God's up to. That's what he's always been up to. That's what he'll be up to. How do we summarize God's saving purposes? Ephesians 2 7 does a pretty good job so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose for your existence. This is the purpose for our being Christians. This is what it's all about. So let me just close with this note. Where does that leave us today? Where does this great truth of verse 32, this great climactic statement that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, where does this leave us this week? I think it leaves us here. Live a life, no matter what you face, that is full of praise to God for his mercy. When we do that, when we live that way, we are doing what we will be doing eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. And we are in accord with the will of God. You know this, if you are praising God for his mercy, you are living in accordance in that way with the will of your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing these things to us this morning. We pray that it would calibrate our thinking, that it would uh, help us be better readers of the Bible, that it would uh, spur us on in discussion about your purposes and plans. But God, above all the discussions, Lord, would we leave here this morning in a state of awe for your purposes? In a state of humility, because we're not the end of the story. And in a state of gratitude, because of your great mercy. Lord, would we at least leave here feeling the effect of that on our very souls. Go with us now, Lord, we pray, as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.